This podcast is a production of Journey, a church community inspiring people to live big. For more information, please visit cincyjourney.org. How are you this morning? It's a beautiful day. God is in his heaven, and uh, he is good. He is good. Uh, I got, I know, you want to know how good he is? I got finally four new tires for my car. It took me two weeks to get four tires. The reason for that is when I got the flat tire that morning and my spare went flat, I had to take the tire off the car and the only place open was Pep Boys. So I go in and they sell me this tire. It's a Goodyear all-season tire, expensive tire, 160 bucks out the door for one tire. I'm, I grew up working for Goodyear. Yeah, my family worked for Goodyear. My father was in charge of Plant One offices. My sister was over payroll. That, that's who we were. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I've been around tires, bought, sold tires, uh, changed tires. You name it, I've done it with tires over the years. So I'm always looking for a deal <laughs> because I never paid full price for tires in my life growing up. And... Uh, so anyhow, I paid for this tire, and I said, okay, I got to have it. I got to get that car on the road. And, and so the next week, uh, I thought, well, okay, I'll call and get three more. So I called the local tire guy. I said, well, we don't have any of those in stock. I called another place. We don't have any of those in stock. I gave a work around. Finally, uh, it's Monday of last week. I called the Goodyear store in Vandalia, and... He says, we don't have any of those in stock. So he said, we'll get them from Louisville. I'll have them for you Wednesday. Wednesday comes along, he doesn't have them. Thursday, he doesn't have them. I said, I need those tires. I am going to D.C. on Saturday, and I have to have four good tires to get there. And uh, so uh, he still didn't get them. So I called another place. They say, we got, it. We got them in the warehouse. All great. Bring them over on Friday, we'll put them on, I'll be good to go. I get over there on Friday, they said the three tires they brought in were not the right ones. So they wound up selling me four new tires for the same price as the three other tires, and then took my good tire and gave me an actual real spare with a rim that would fit it and nuts and bolts and put it in the trunk of my car. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. It's a good day. I got four good tires. And uh, you just never know. You just never know. Uh, but the life just sends you curves, doesn't it? You know, things just don't always work out the way you plan them. Anybody notice that? How many of you had your plans for life change on you? Yeah. And how often did that mess with your mind? Always. Yeah. People spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out why life did not work out the way they wanted it to. Or why did my plans go awry? What we think in our brain affects how we live our lives. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Hmm. Your mind is a beautiful thing, but it can mess you up real good 
if you let it. Today, we're going to talk about a mind for God, learning to love God with all of your mind. What does our text say? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. So we want to know, how do we love God with all of our mind? Uh, that is crucial for us. I want to begin with a text out of Philippians chapter 2, and uh, verse 5 today, and uh, set this as the stage for you in learning to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. How do we do that? We've got to figure out what we do with our mind because our mind can mess up your heart. Your mind can mess up your life, your soul. Your mind can drain you of all your energy and strength and passion for life. So we got to get the mind straight. Anybody ready for that? Let's jump into it. Listen to what it says. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude or this mindset that was in Christ Jesus, that was also in him, who was by the very nature God, existed in the form of God. But he did not regard equality with God as something to hang on to. No. Instead, and this is from the Greek word kenosis, uh, it says he took on the very nature of a servant here. Literally in the Greek, kenosis means he emptied himself. Emptied himself. And taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself to the point of becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that same Jesus who's who God exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Father, open it to our minds, to our understanding this day. In your name we pray. Amen. Have this mind, the King James says, or what it means literally is this attitude, this, this way of thinking that was also in Jesus, let it be in you. And what did Jesus do with his mind? He abandoned himself of self. Took on the role of a bondservant. And he said, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'm going to do. In many places through the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, and it's a very remarkable thing. He says, the Son of Man, well, let's turn there. Go with me to John 5, 28. You don't have to get it on the screen. We'll just go there. I want you to see this because if you don't grasp this, you're going to miss out on a lot. Let's go to John chapter 5, verse 30. Let's pick it up at verse 30. Listen to what this says. John 5, verse 30. Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own initiative. 
You get that? Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus could do nothing. Why could he do nothing? He, because he emptied himself of himself. He put himself in a position where he said, what I see God do, this is what I do. This is what my life is about. Not about me, but about what God wants me to do. And that's what I do. He goes on to say um, in John chapter 6, he says in verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Isn't that pretty amazing? He goes on, if you read further through these texts, he will say in um, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 18, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him is true and righteous, and there's no unrighteousness in him. Uh, Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 16, he says, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is of God or whether I speak from myself. That's pretty amazing stuff. Chapter 8, verse 28 says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And listen to this. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Now, grasp this. Jesus is saying... I don't do anything. I, I'm not making this stuff up. This isn't in my head. This isn't what I think I should do. Whatever I see the Father do, this is what I do. This is the most important teaching there is in the world because it will change your life. You know what's wrong with most of us in our churches and in our own personal Christian life is? We are too good at doing it all in our own strength and our own ability and figuring it out for ourselves. We do not have the mind of God. We have our own mind. Isn't that neat? We have our own mind. People say that all the time. Mind's beautiful. Beautiful thing. There's all kinds of ways that the mind works, and there's types of minds. There's the, the athletic and the mind. There are people who have areas of intelligence over how they use their body, you know, uh, that's the athletic mind. There are people who just know, athletes who know how to reach up and you can see them play it over and catch that beautiful pass and bring that down and it's poetry when they do it. There are people who can dance and when they dance, it is beautiful, it's poetry. I am not one of those people. I had a gal in last week uh, at our, our church uh, up north uh, doing a workshop on old-time music, and she can play the, the banjo, 
and clog at the same time and dance while she does it. And she'll do step dance, tap dance, you name it, she does it. I begged her, when you come in, you must teach me how to do that. I said, you know what? I'm going to sit here in the chair and practice moving my feet from a chair. I can dance from a chair, but I cannot get up and dance. There is the kind of mind that is analytical. That's the mind of a scientist or a mathematician. That's the analytical mind. There is the mind that is the artistic mind. It can be the person who knows how to paint and and create beautiful things. The creative mind. There's the mind that, that is linked to that, that is the musical mind. That you know how to take music and play it and create it. There is the language arts mind, we call it. The mind that knows how to think in terms of language and vocabulary. These are all wonderful things. But the biggest problem with the mind is not that you have all of those abilities. It's that you focus those abilities on what you think you ought to do with them rather than what God wants you to do with them. Think about the temptation in the garden. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, there was nothing wrong with them when God made them. Did you know that? When he made them and made the heavens and the earth, he gave himself an A+. He said, it is good. I always remember when my teachers would write that on my papers in school. Good. I love to take that home. God gave himself A+. He said, it is good. Nothing wrong with them. There they were in the Garden of Eden. Naked, unashamed, not a thing wrong with them. But then the devil comes along, this anointed cherub that was there to protect them, and says instead to them, didn't God say you could eat of any tree in the garden? Yeah, except for the tree in the midst of the garden. The day we eat of that tree, we will surely die. Oh, he says, you surely won't die. Uh Uh-oh, he's messing with their mind. He says, he's holding out on you because he knows the day you eat of that tree, you will come to know good and evil and be like gods yourself. You will be a god. This is the problem with the mind. We want to be God in our own brain. So Eve looked at the fruit and, you know, she saw it as something Looks delicious, looks like something that worthy to have. You know, she thought about it. And if you think about anything long enough, you will do it. And with her mind, she took and she ate of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we don't have the recorded conversation of what she said to Adam to get him to eat it, but I'd love to know how that conversation went because it messed up his brain. But they ate to know good and evil. Do you know what that means? That means when you choose to eat from knowledge of good and evil, that you're no longer trusting anyone else's opinion for what's right and wrong. You are going to decide it yourself. When children are little and they grow up, they trust you for what's right and wrong. That's why as a parent, you really are to have good boundaries for your children and you are the one who to establish them and protect them because they just 
can trust you. They are innocent like Adam and Eve. They have not yet eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they grow to a point where they will eventually get there. It's what we used to call the age of accountability. But they grow to a point where they decide what's right and what's wrong. You know that, especially when they become teenagers. Because your teenager will look at you and wonder, how did you live to be so old and know so little? You know, uh, they've already got their mind made up. They know what's best. You don't know what's right. I was one time trying to tell my children the way it was when I grew up, you know, like when I grew up, I mean, we went outside and played from morning till they rang the bell for dinner time. We might come in for lunch. We might not, but we played, ran the neighborhood. Nobody was watching us. We were free as children. And we all had knives, pocket knives. Frightening, isn't it? We sometimes would walk to school, ride our bicycle. Sometimes we'd take the bus. Sometimes we chose not to. And nobody seemed to mind. We, everybody was looking out for everybody's kids. Everybody kind of knew where you were. But you found your way home. They'd lock you up in jail for that today. But that's the way we lived. My daughter says to me, and she was born in 1980. She says, Dad, I can't conceive a world like that because I never lived in it. You understand? This generation doesn't understand our generation because they never lived our life. They have no frame of reference for that. It is interesting how the mind works. But these kids growing up eventually decide, I think I know what's best based on your life experiences. Which, by the way, are very small. So you go around and decide whether you should do this or should not do this, eat this, not eat that. You decide based on information and you get it all from that wonderful source that was supposed to uh, change everything, the internet. You know, somebody said that the reason people used to, they used to say, and I remember them saying it, that people make bad decisions because they don't have enough information. And they, some way, said the internet has proven that to be untrue. We have more information we've ever had and we're making poorer decisions than we've ever made. Our world has more information than they've ever had. Our politicians have more information than they ever could have imagined. And they're making poorer decisions than they've ever made. Why? Because here is the thing and the problem with the mind. No matter how much you try to decide what's right or wrong, you don't know what you need to know. I don't care if you have a PhD degree. You don't know what you need to know. You understand about life, about how to live your life. I've known people who were brilliant minds, doctors in their particular fields, who made very poor decisions with their life. You understand what I'm saying? 
How could they when they're that brilliant and that educated? Guess what? I've been a pastor for over 40 years. I know this is true because I've made stupid decisions in my life. How? Because I know it's going to be a dumb decision when I make it and have not relied upon God to show me the way. You understand what I'm saying? When I try to decide it, it's never going to be right. If you want to love God with your mind, stop trying to use it and pretend you're God. That you know what's best, you know what's right, you know what's wrong. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this. They're going to pull it up for you. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and what? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. He will direct your ways. Lean not to your own understanding because your understanding, no matter how smart you are, is flawed. It's just that simple. I'm just trying to pick you up. I hope this really builds you up here. You're flawed. Turn to the person beside you, look at them and say, you're flawed. Yeah, you know that's true. So how... Do we do this? How do we get to the place where we trust God? I, you know, people say, oh, I wish God would just show me the way and I'd do it if he'd just show me, but I don't know what the way is. You know what your biggest problem is? You're overthinking it all. And you're trying to, again, demand that God give you the answer in the way you think he ought to give you the answer. You're overthinking it. I've had people come in for counseling and say, I just can't figure out what God wants me to do. I said, oh, yes, you can. No, no, I can't figure it out. I said, yes, you can. Let's pray about it right now. Dear Jesus, please show us the way. Here's the circumstance. Here's the situation. He needs an answer. God, just show him the way. And when we get done praying, I say, okay, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And the first thing he says is the right thing. I I will tell you for 95% of the people, because there's always going to be somebody out there who's half a bubble off, a little more half a bubble off than, than the next. But for most people, 95% of the time, you know, as soon as you've prayed, what you should do. And very often we're trying to talk ourselves or God out of having to do it. You understand? Because the right way is before you. You know if you just follow what the Lord told you to do. It's that clear. It's that easy. And I said to that young man, he came up and gave me the answer. I said, that's precisely it. That's it. I could have... He wants me to come to me for counseling so that I can negotiate with God for a way to get him out of having to do what he already knows God wants him to do. I'm not going to do it. Just do what God has told you to do. It's that simple. Jesus said, whoever will do his will will know whether my teaching is of God or not. 
Do you know how you know whether teaching is orthodox? Not by sitting around having a Bible study or sitting and talking to theologians. Jesus says, by doing what I tell you, you will discover whether this works or not. If you actually take what Jesus told you to do and tried to do it, you would discover whether Christianity is true or not. G.K. Chesterton said something, and I'm paraphrasing it, but he said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It just hasn't been tried. I mean, people don't want to actually act upon what Jesus wants them to do. Jesus says, go your ways into the cities and the highways and proclaim the kingdom of God. I mean, it's hard to get people to even want to share Jesus with other people or pray with people. Why are we so bashful? Why are we so shy? Dolly Parton recently was on the, I don't know what award show it was, American Music Country Music Award, I don't know. But boy, did she give a powerful witness to Jesus. They sang a song that rallied people, and people were astonished by what she said. She just wasn't going to pull back. Now, the interesting thing about Dolly Parton is she's non-political. She doesn't get into debates and argument, but she's one of the most respected women in this country. But boy, she threw herself out there and just went for it. Well, I'm no Dolly Parton. Well, maybe you're not. We don't need everybody to be Dolly Parton. It'd be a strange world if we all were. But you're who God made you to be. And all you have to do is act upon what he wants you to do. And that will make the difference. You see, many of the problems that we have, not all of them, there are things that people do to hurt us and, and, and uh, harm us. And, and there are things that we have to work through with all of that. I'm not negating any of that that can mess up with our head. But many times, much of the problems that we have are problems we just brought on ourselves. Because we have stinking thinking. We're not thinking clear enough. Reminds me of a story. Uh, there was a fellow who uh, went to work and on Sunday morning he, or on Monday morning he, a afternoon at lunchtime, he opens up his lunchbox. He says, I can't believe it. My wife packed me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Can't stand peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And next day he opens up his lunchbox and it's peanut butter and jelly sandwich again. And the third day, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Fourth day, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know, he says, I can't stand it anymore. I got peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day this week in my lunch. He says, and my wife's been out of town. He said, well, why didn't you have your wife pack you something else when she left? He says, you leave my wife out of this. I pack my own lunches. <laughs> we can bring it on ourselves. We pack our own lunch. We pack our own lunch. We have to realize that that's what the Bible really means, you know. Uh, that what you sow, you reap. 
God isn't being mean about that. I didn't say, you know, people act like, well, God says what you sow, you reap, so he must be punishing me. No, God didn't punish you. God isn't out to get you. God loves you so much, he can't wait to get you straightened, uh, you know, through some of these trials and tribulations and get you pulled through and get you into heaven where you can finally have eternal joy forever because he, he, he just loves you that much. But he's trying to tell you that there is a way, he says, that seems right unto man, that the end thereof is destruction. And what we have to look for is whether or not we're depending on what he thinks and doing what God wants us to do, or will we have it our way? We're the our way society, we're the our way world. We're all about do it for me, make me happy. We're so self-centered. We've been taught that. There's another whole area that one day I'll talk to you about maybe. But the biggest delusion that there ever was perpetrated upon American society and culture that uh, has done more harm to our culture and to Christianity than all of the isms in the world has been the self-esteem movement. Self-esteem is a fraud. Did you know that? I didn't realize it for years. The self-esteem movement crashed and burned in 99, by the way, culturally. Um, but one day I was preparing a sermon on uh, pride. Now, how many of you know pride's wrong? Arrogance. Y'all know that? So I was preparing a sermon. I looked in the American Heritage Dictionary for the definition of pride, and they had arrogance and all this stuff. And then the last thing they had in there was to indulge in self-esteem. And I thought, oh my golly, is pride and self-esteem the same thing? And then I discovered it was. There was one famous psychologist that uh, who never bought into it. And uh, he said this, is self-esteem a sickness? It depends on how you define it, but as it's defined by most psychologists and lay people today, it's an emotional disturbance of the worst sort. It may even be worse than hating other people, which at first sounds worse, but probably isn't. Wow, that was Albert Ellis. In the field of psychology, they list Carl Rogers number one, Freud number two as far as influence, and number three is Albert Ellis. The man who founded the self-esteem movement in 1958 got up and said in 2002, it is the biggest regret of my life. Wow. Back in the 19th century, there was a woman who wrote this. Nine-tenths of our suffering comes from others not thinking as highly of us as we think they ought to. 
Let me say that again so that it sinks in deep. Nine-tenths of our suffering comes from others not thinking as highly of us as we think they ought to. Who thinks? We think. How do you reconcile self-esteem with the Bible when the Bible says esteem others better than yourself? How do you reconcile it with the call of Jesus who says, if any man wishes to come after me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It isn't that you have to be down on yourself. Low self-esteem is still pride and ego. It's just wounded ego. It's wounded pride. And high self-esteem is exalted pride and exalted ego. You understand? That's all it ever was. And we didn't know it, did we? I saw books building your mate's self-esteem. I was sent a book by a famous preacher one time called Self-Esteem, the New Reformation in the Church. We go around trying to get the church and everybody to do what makes me happy. That is not going to make you happy. Sorry. It's going to make you more miserable because the moment you feel good about yourself, somebody's going to walk in the door and take you down. Right? The moment you try to take your identity, and self-esteem is taking your identity, and either the way you look or what you do or how the things that you're trying to achieve and trying to get people to cooperate with that and love you back for it. And it doesn't work, and it's self-deceiving. If you don't think it's self-deceiving, how many people were told they were wonderful singers and weren't and wound up on American Idol expecting everybody to say, oh, tell me how great I am. You're not great. You don't sing well. If you can't be told the truth because it hurts your, ear, your self-esteem, your ego, your pride, then you're going to live a very deceived and delusional life. And it's going to mess your mind up. You need to be able to hear the truth and stand in it. Jesus says in John chapter 8 that the devil is a devil because he does not stand in truth. You don't stand in truth and see yourself correctly. You don't have to beat yourself up and you don't have to get down on yourself. When you abandon yourself, as we've been talking about through this message, and you leave your identity in the hands of God, because what your true identity is not that you'll be a great singer, a great preacher. My identity is not that I'm a pastor. To my granddaughter, I'm nothing more than a granddad. My identity is I'm a child of God. And I'm to love my neighbor as I love myself. I have something far better for you than self-esteem. For you to love your neighbor and you to love yourself. Warts and all. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, like who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter who you are, enjoy who you are. This is God's gift. He's given you this body. For better or worse, even though when I laugh, my face looks like a road map, it's my face. So I'm going to wash it. Why? Because it's my face. You know why I love my face? It's how my granddaughter recognizes me. Love who you are. 
but forget yourself. What the Bible is calling you to when he says deny yourself is what C.S. Lewis called self-forgetfulness. Stop thinking of who you should be. Stop wearing your mind out trying to be what you're not. Quit pretending. I mean, children can pretend to be doctors, nurses, and firemen, and it's cute because they know it's pretend and they know it's not real. But when adults pretend they're something they're not, that's insanity. The man thinks he's Napoleon when he's not. That's insanity. When you take your identity in something other than being a child of God, when you say, I'm this, I'm that, you are messing with your brain. Be self-forgetful. Be a child of God and say, God, I am your child. You decide what I need to do today and you guide me in the right way. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you want to love God with all of your mind, then give your mind to God. And let Him show you the way. Lean not to your own understanding, but acknowledge Him in all your ways. And He will direct your paths. Okay? Well, stand with me this morning. We're going to sing a song, and and then we're going to have a mindful moment where we're going to allow God to begin to speak to us and to direct our thoughts. So let's just take a moment and pray as they get ready to sing. And let's get our minds before the Lord. Turn your attention to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will grant us an understanding that you will help us to hear and see what you would have us to do in our minds, in our heart, in our lives. We want to love you, Lord, with all of our mind. In Jesus' name, amen.